0: Good afternoon and welcome to the 125th of The COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today on September 11, I talk with fire science professor and disaster investigation expert, Glenn Corbett. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 11, 2020, there are 28,273,312 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 27,976,756 reported yesterday. 6,430,860 of those cases are in the United States. That's up from 6,387,236 yesterday. There are now a total of 192,616 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. That's up from 191,536 reported yesterday, another day with more than 1,000 deaths day to day. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline, Albert Petricelli, fire chief who lost a son on 9-11 dies at 73. This appeared in the New York Times April 7th by Dan Berry. In recent years, Albert Petricelli was known in Staten Island's Huguenot section as that nice man with the rosary beads and the bountiful garden. He walked the local streets, rosary in hand, offering to say prayers for those who could use them, a neighbor, a crossing guard, anyone. But Mr. Petricelli, who died at 73 of the novel coronavirus on April 1st, was more than a retiree with beads and time on his hands. He served in Vietnam. He served as a New York Fire Department battalion chief. He lost a son in the World Trade Center attacks. Most of all, his wife, Ginger Petricelli, said he was a good guy. Mr. Petricelli was born on February 21st, 1947, to Peter Petricelli, a postal worker, and Mary Capece Petricelli, who ran the household. The family lived first on the Lower East Side of Manhattan and then in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, where he attended William E. Grady High School and planned on becoming an electrician. When he was still in high school, Albert met an Irish-American girl, Ginger Walsh, at a sweet shop in Bay Ridge, and they began to date. After high school and with the army about to send him overseas, they married in a hurry on March 18, 1967, the day between the Irish-centric St. Patrick's Day and the Italian-centric St. Joseph's Day. Mr. Petricelli came home from the war a year later, and before long, the couple had two boys. He enjoyed a long career with the fire department, retiring as a battalion chief in Brooklyn, the son's Albert Jr. a firefighter and Mark a commodities broker both married and settled in Staten Island everything was like Mr P- Mr Petricelli once said and Mrs Petricelli finished the thought the way it should be on September 11 2001 Mark was on the 92nd floor of the North Tower when the first plane hit his father and older brother rushed to lower Manhattan determined to find him but his father's can-do attitude forged by war and fire, could not overcome what they found and could not find. Mr. Petricelli was 28. Things were not as they should have been, but the Petricelli's endured. They set up a memorial in their yard. They doted on their two granddaughters, Emily and Lily. They celebrated their 50th anniversary in style. They also managed to have a brief moment with Pope Francis during the Pontiff's New York visit in 2015 while attending a ceremony at the National September 11 Memorial and Museum, Mr. Petricelli held out his firefighter's hat, which contained some rosaries and prayer cards, and asked the Pope to bless them in Mark's memory. The Pope smiled and blessed everything he had. Mrs. Petricelli recalled. Mr. Petricelli walked nearly every morning to 7:30 Mass at Saint Joseph by the Sea High School. He walked everywhere, in fact, holding his rosary beads of green Connemara marble. That is when he wasn't nurturing his garden's fruits and vegetables, which he would often give away. Sometimes he gave away the entire plant. He began to feel uncharacteristically fatigued in mid-March, declined over the next two weeks and died at Staten Island Hospital's South Campus. In addition to his wife and son, Mr. Petricelli is survived by two granddaughters. When Mark was killed, I was devastated, Mrs. Petricelli said, voice breaking, but I had Albie, we did it together. A week after his death, his wife was continuing to receive messages from the many people her husband had touched. I have his strawberry plants, they say. I have his fig trees. All right, I'm going to introduce my guest now. Really thrilled to introduce him. He's... Uh, A real expert and also a friend, Glenn Corbett, is associate professor of fire science at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, where he was the former chair of the Department of Protection Management. He's a technical editor of Fire Engineering Magazine and is a former assistant chief of the Waldwick, New Jersey Fire Department. And he's also the former president of the New Jersey Society of Fire Service Instructors. Corbett testified before the 9-11 Commission and the U.S. House of Representatives Science Committee regarding the emergency response and building safety issues of the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. He served on the Federal Advisory Committee of the National Construction Safety Team, which investigated the World Trade Center disaster, as well as the station nightclub fire in West Warwick, Rhode Island. In addition, he continues to serve as the chief technical advisor to the Skyscraper Safety Campaign, a building safety advocacy group created by 9-11 family members. Corbett is a co-author of Brannigan's Building Construction for the Fire Service, 6th edition. In addition, he is the editor of Fire Engineering's Handbook for Firefighters 1 and 2. He also has an avid interest in firefighting and history, authoring The Great Patterson Fire of 1902 and co-authoring Historic Fires of New York City. Glenn Corbett, thank you for making time to come on COVID Calls today.
1: Well, thank you, Scott. Uh, You've been a good long-time friends, so thank you for having me on tonight.
0: I want to remind everybody you can get your questions in. Just put them into YouTube Live in the chat. You can also put them up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag me at US of Disaster or just put them uh, directly into an email. Some people like to do that, and I appreciate that, and I'll check email during the broadcast. I'm at SGK23 at Drexel.edu. So Glenn, let's start the way I usually do, which is just to find out where you're calling in from and how's the pandemic there today?
1: Well, I'm calling actually from uh, my home in Waldwick, New Jersey. That's uh, Northwest Bergen County. Uh, We're um, just below uh, Suffern, New York, sort of where the New York State Thruway sort of goes straight up into the rest of New York. We're just below that area. So uh, as far as the, um, the coronavirus, uh, being in New Jersey, of course, just last week, we ended up uh, now allowing some indoor dining. Uh, it's been a very slow process. As you can imagine, there's been a lot of of, um, uh, of concern and, of course, some uh, dissension amongst various, uh, particularly, business groups and things over a variety of things, and restaurants being one of the pure ones. Uh, I have to say that, uh, overall, I, I think New Jersey you know, per capita, we were probably hit the worst in, in the entire United States because we're right next to New York City. Um, and uh, we, we had all the same effects that New York had um, in a much smaller state, basically. So um, I think, you know, we've certainly flattened the curve here. Uh, I think overall, we've done a good job within the state of, of um, doing the right things. I mean, there's, again, social distancing and the mask. I was just at a luncheon today for someone who's retiring and uh, we all wear masks during, you know, during during lunch, basically, as much as we could. So I think, like I said, I think we're doing well. Um, of course, we're all worried about, you know, the uh, upcoming winter season when perhaps this is going to come back again. So I think we have the, the pieces in place uh, to deal with what we have to. Um, we've identified a lot of potholes along the way. So but I think
0: that's where we are right now. So you are a longtime uh, professor and former department head at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. I spent um, one of my favorite years as a teacher at at John Jay College. It's a remarkable institution. It's a public-oriented, public service-oriented institution. Um, And I'm wondering right now how John Jay as part of the city university system, how they've coped with COVID-19? Are they trying to reopen?
1: Well, uh, CUNY made a decision to basically go virtual for the full semester. Um, you know, CUNY is is one of the largest, it's certainly the largest urban university in the country system. It's uh, over 12, well, it's actually 12 senior colleges and several um, junior colleges. Um, so, oh, well over 200,000 students uh, throughout the system. So, it's a it's a pretty big, pretty big uh, organization. Um, you know, and, uh, there were, there were again, bumps in the road. Uh, our union was very concerned of course about bringing people back into the school. Cause where I am physically located in New York at John Jay, we're at 59th street and 10th Avenue. We have one square block, basically 59th sick, uh, excuse me, 58th, 59th, 10th and 11th. So that's right across from Roosevelt hospital. And, um, we have 16,000 students in our college and, uh, Trying to get them all in under normal circumstances is an issue. We've had to flatten our schedule because we don't have enough classroom space. Even though we're in an rele- almost brand new building, we're way under capacity in terms of our ability to run more sections of class we like to. So when, when this, of course, happened, uh, we ended up, you know, having to think about, what would, if we did go uh, brick and mortar, what would we have to do? And of course we don't have enough space to even probably less than half the number of students we would be able to handle. So that combined with the financial pressures of the city, um, we ended up cutting a lot of sections out this semester. So what the net result was, we still had the same, pretty much the same population coming to school. It's just, they had fewer sections to choose from. So that meant of course, that every one of our classes now is pretty full or over full, mm-hmm. basically, right mm-hmm. now. So I have to say, John Jay itself did, I think, a wonderful job. We're fortunate that we've got some really good people, particularly in the, even our faculty who responded very quickly. We were on Zoom within a, within three days. We already have Blackboard, you know, for the folks who uh, in the university world, Blackboard uh, we've had for, for since the 90s. Which is great for all the paperwork side of things, but you know, this kind of interaction stuff, uh, it wasn't really well suited for that. So we got into Zoom within two or three days. We have a very top-notch uh faculty who were well versed in that. One particular professor actually um uh made the case to the administration we need to get on Zoom. I had never even heard of Zoom. A lot of people had heard Zoom before this all started. Right. So he knew all about it. He's a very tech-oriented kind of guy. He's actually got a SAG card too. Scott um and his most famous role was he was the young kid in Goodfellas in that movie walking up to that pink Cadillac and looking inside <laughs> that was when he was a kid now he's a <laughs> professor at John Chase There like, you go. Like, so anyway he did all that and so we were we we literally were able to go really almost continue keeping our classes going you know with that so, so we did pretty well I think
0: <laughs> yeah that's that's good and uh, you're teaching online then
1: Yes. Yeah. We're, uh, you know what? I suspect we're going to be uh, online in the spring as well, because yeah. as we know, I mean, great. We'll have a vaccine. Let's say we even had the vaccine by the end of the year. You know, we're talking 350 million people and today they were saying it's probably gonna be a double dose. So, you know, that's yeah. uh 700 million doses we're going to have to come up with pretty quickly and everybody's going to be wanting them. So I, I cannot see us going back, but again, it's, it's really not my choice. Uh, I would right. personally, I would rather you know, do this. I mean, listen, I think we all can agree that this is a wonderful technology we have now to do this. Can you imagine if this happened 20 years ago, where we would be, we'd have to shut this college down. I mean, I don't, there's Absolutely. no way that this would have worked. So thank God for this technology. On the other hand, it is, it is what it is. And people, you know, sometimes I got students who really can't stand it, but it's just, the, it's the only way we can, we can deal with this right now. So, you know, we made, right. made you know, we made, made it work basically.
0: Right. And I think, you know, to what you were saying earlier about the the experience that New Jersey and New York have had, it's as bad of an April as can be imagined. Um, they're going to be leaders are going to be risk averse uh, to bring in people back into situations, maybe less so than in other states where uh, the curve either never came or is only now is only now coming. Um, you know, Glenn, you know more than anybody I'm aware of about how disaster investigations work and how governments function in disaster. And so, I want to—I want to sort of give you kind of a broad question here about this pandemic. What—what um, what has gone wrong? <laughs> I mean, let me just ask it that way, because I'm always you know, you see nuances that other people don't always see and the way that agencies interact or don't interact well. I'm curious what you, you know, I know what has made the headlines and it's the executive, the president and his failures, um, which we've learned even more about this week. But there's a lot more to this disaster than that. And so I'm curious sort of your take, also realizing we're, are we even halfway through this? I don't, I don't know. Um, we're in the middle of something here, but where? What is your mind on the failures as of now?
1: Well, uh, actually, I did an op-ed uh, um, a couple months ago for the North Jersey uh, paper, the, the Bergen Record, and um, what I called for in this article was was a COVID commission to look at the issues. Because in my mind, I mean, we all understand. What is, you know, the problems of the actual disease itself, the uh, infection rates and the proper, you know, uh, PPE that we need, and all those kind of things. But in my mind, there's so many other issues that came to the forefront in the last six months that are, in my mind, just as critical. Can you imagine, for example, if our food chain shut down in the middle of all this? Okay. Can you imagine um, if... You know, we didn't have, for example, um, you know, the the uh, resources particularly in, you know, we know, listen, the medical system was strained dramatically. But again, you think about the resources, just, just the normal day-to-day kind of stuff that we need to function, right? So um, there's so many government and particularly non-government private sector impacts that we really need to look at. You know, because again, we, all of us know what happened in the supermarkets, the toilet paper disappeared, the paper towels disappeared and all those sort of, in the first few weeks, it took months to get that back. Now, what do we learn? For example, just let's take toilet paper, for example, a crazy example like that. Um, you know, people of course bought more perhaps than they needed because they didn't know if they'd ever get it again, basically. So they bought a lot and we were short for, for months with that. Well, some, we've done some initial research and we find out, for example, that this is not a situation where we can tell the toilet paper manufacturers to turn the switch up and make more. There's a physical limitation on what they can do. And here's an odd one. When we talk about toilet paper. There's really two different industries. There is the stuff that you and I buy in the supermarket, the small rolls. Then there's a whole nother toilet paper industry that supplies all the industrial commercial kind of business the toilet papers for the airports and the bigger buildings and stuff, those roles are gigantic. Those two things do not mix. They cannot switch from one to the other. So we learned that of course. And of course the big one, a lot of us know is the, the PPE issue. Um, You know, we've outsourced so much of this now that um, it turns out in my specific case, um, uh, one of the roles that I have here locally is uh, again, being involved with the fire service. I'm president of our, local mutual aid association. So it's basically 15 towns in Northwest Bergen County, Mawa down to Fairlawn, all the fire departments and rescue companies are in there. Our association has been around for 60 years and we work together to try to improve responses, training. I mean, we do all those kinds of things. Well, it turns out that at the end of the day, here in Bergen County, that um, there were of course shortages of PPE. And it was one of these deals was a friend through a friend. We ended up actually our nonprofit association ended up contracting with a local phlebotomy company in Ramsey to actually access PPE because they had a factory in China. Okay. Mm. So we were able to access it for our fire departments. We weren't getting it from state. We weren't getting it from the County. we got it ourselves. Basically. Mm -hmm. And I think we, at the end of the day, we spent, um, which we each town basically paid us back, but we ended up spending about $60,000 in, in KN95 masks. Wow. Yeah. That shouldn't happen. I mean, that's the point. Is that that the PP Everybody talks about PPE, and that's certainly one of the biggest issues we've had. But I guess what i was saying earlier is that every other thing that we think about, what we do, we've really got to look at that. We I, really we need a much broader sort of approach, just beyond the disease itself, but to look at all the tentacles that are tied to that to that issue. Because again, as I said before, if it was food or our water supply or whatever else, if anything else shut down in the midst of this, we'd really be up the Creek. Um, it's bad enough as it was, but it could have been a lot worse. You know, I mean, we can't let our guard down on a lot of these things because, because again, we're so, we we're so used to a normal process. So we go to the store or we pay our bill for this utility or we do this or that. Um, we don't think about what would happen if that thing was just stopped. You know, I tell my students that I said, you know, you know, we know how much water, for example, water supply is important for firefighting. Right. But I tell you right now, if we shut this New York City's water supply off, the city would literally dry in the vine. Basically, the, the city would empty out very quickly because water is so essential. to A lot of things we do. I said the one that people forget about is the sewage systems. If we don't have a sewage system in a major city, we got a big problem. So. There were impacts in so many areas that I think we need to be, we got to pay a lot of attention at. We certainly want to pay attention to the disease. How did it spread? How did all these, what were the missed points along the way? We certainly have to do that, but we can't forget about all the other things that are tied to it that we really should be studying. So, you know, it's, it's, it's
0: important. It's important. Right. It's, it, it, this ties into the discussion I had yesterday with Andy Horowitz and Jacob Remus. And, and it's not to downplay the, the important, you know, the core of it, the virus and the transmission of the virus and the, what happens in hospitals. But what you're really talking about this disaster, we're talking about society. We're talking about who's vulnerable in society, who has access to resources and who doesn't. And then we're talking about systems. And we're talking about systems which are operating under stress. And so with that in mind, I mean, if, if your governor or let's say the governor of Texas or Florida somewhere called you up tomorrow and said, you know, Glenn, I heard you on COVID calls and I uh, need to know what can we do now? I mean, what kind of advice would you give in the midst of this pandemic for elected officials, policymakers? Uh, I mean, we hear a lot about the need for universal testing. Of course, the PPE need is still there. What else is on your mind? Because we're going to be going into the fall. It's going to be a while before there's a vaccine.
1: Right. So in my mind, I I would be, um, you know, calling up the leaders or associations for all these related issues. Again, like I said, food before. And it's not even just the food stores, but the food purveyors, the food processors you know, I would be calling up all these groups to say, how are we prepared for the winter here? Are you guys, in a in a, in a sense, in, in a good place in terms of being able to continue to operate? Meaning, remember, we all heard about the pork plants that shut down because so many workers were sick. I mean, are they now in a much better position? How about the refineries? You know, we rely on, you know, we want to be green, but we still rely on oil. You know, and I don't, I imagine most people know that we have the bare number of refineries in this country. We don't build, we, we're not building any new refineries anymore, okay? The existing ones are out there. And so we know even like in California, when one of those goes down for whatever reason, an explosion or fire, or just normal maintenance, prices start to go up. So we're still reliant on fossil fuels. How are we with that? So I guess to me, if I was the governor of Texas, I used to live there for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, hey, Glenn, what do you think we should do? I would, I would contact all the particularly vulnerable and essential businesses in the state and find out where they are. And do we got to sort of supplement or do something to support them? Right. Which might mean changes, it could even mean to change the regulation. It could be money, it could be other things. But but that's what I would do. I mean, because again, we got we have to know where we are with this. You know, does the does the lights do the lights go out because because my power generating plant has no employees in it anymore that can run the plant. I mean, we have regulations in place, of course, for, for utilities that and particularly in the federal level utilities that, you know, maybe they can't meet those standards basically. So it's, a, it's, right. it's really, as God, you point out, it's really complicated, but, but it's not complicated when you're at home and you can't get meat or you can't get milk or something like that. I mean, that's, that's really the thing and so we got to figure that out. And and that's why I'm saying. I think yeah. going forward, once the dust settles, the most important thing, Scott, is you know this, there is an issue of timing and the issue of people's attention. We know that once a disaster passes, every day we go past that disaster ending, the interest level, the attention yeah. level all goes down, 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 down. Yeah. So we got to make sure that we don't lose the enthusiasm because you know it could happen again and we're not prepared for it because we didn't study it. That's the thing. And so for your listeners, Scott is, a, is one of the leading advocates in the country for studying these kind of things to the depth that we learn what happened so we can, of course, apply those lessons for the future. So thank you, Scott, for doing that. Because like I said, Scott is Scott's dedicated his career to the whole field of disaster investigations. And we need those things because those tell us what happened. We, and unfortunately, we, sometimes they take time, they're unpleasant, they're not easiest things to do, but they're critically important.
0: But we do need those investigations. And as you pointed out, uh, as you talked about your op-ed, and I'll be sure to put that up on Twitter after our conversation, uh, It's this is a, in terms of time, this disaster is, is, um, it's not a slow disaster like climate change, and it's not an, a, an immediate sort of event. It's a meta it's it's got a me, sort of a meta or mezzo level. It's it's a it's a time frame we're not used to dealing with. It's stretching emergency management departments. It's stretching first responders who are not used to fifty state EOC activations that last this long. Um, and I think that's so. Your point about needing to really be attentive to it. I mean, to, to the way you're talking about, I think a lot of people probably have forgotten. Even just listening to you talk the terror that people felt in March, not just that they might get sick, but going to a grocery store and seeing empty shelves, or everyone's relying on their computers at home to work, to have school, and then someone says, hey, what would happen right now if the power went out? What would happen if everybody working for the power company got sick all of a sudden? These kinds of broader sort of system level, technological system level, logistics level things are not over, as you point out. And, you know, the fall and into the winter and winter storms, they're going to really stress these systems. They do it every year. They stress these systems.
1: Right. We don't have a lot of redundancy in a lot of things in life. There's not a lot of backup. There's not uh, absolutely a not. line of people ready to take over for something. I mean, even here in New Jersey, we had some ambulance cores, which we rely very heavily on, volunteer ambulance cores. A couple of them completely shut down. They just stopped responding because they had no ability to do it. And of course, in my world, uh, a little bit older, and uh, a lot of these volunteers are older. They're worried about themselves getting sick, because in those early days, you know, it was really bad. I mean, it was the hospitals were teeming with people. And the ambulance corps are like, hey, I'm a volunteer. Do I want to volunteer to take some really sick person in my ambulance and, and try to help them? Yeah, you want to do that. But but some of them felt that it was just too much of a risk. Yeah. So, you know, we there's certain things and again, you know, as they say, you can depend on death and taxes. <laughs> That's about it. But anything else is really subject to to, to failure. And so we got to understand that. So what happens, like you just said, Scott, what happens when the power goes out when 90% of the people that are working now are working from home on computers like this? You know, what do you do with something like that? You know, so um, right. it's, it's something that we need to understand where those, those critical, really critical elements are that we don't lose, that one more failure, one more domino sort of takes everything out with it. I mean, we can't, this could have happened. And I don't, I, of course, I don't want to really be, uh, you know, the, 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 the purveyor of death and doom, but we are still, don't forget, we're still vulnerable to terrorism attacks, Okay. And if a terrorist is thinking about things, when's the best time to do an attack? It's during when you're most vulnerable, basically. So we have to we still have to be vigilant about that stuff too. I mean, so we can't, we're very focused on, of course, with COVID and, and our lives that have been changed with that, but we can't forget all those, we'll call them uh, you know, I don't want to say even normal, it's not normal, but regular kind of things we worry about in life before COVID, those are still there, you know, and how well are we protected? Or we, res- we have enough resources to deal
0: with it. Anyway. Just want to remind people you're listening to COVID calls and talking to Glenn Corbett today, a special September 11 discussion. So, Lynn, let's go back a little bit. Um, Let's talk about September 11. And one of the interesting things I've noticed in the midst of this pandemic is people, and I think this is appropriate, but people are very careful, um, usually, to honor the fear, concern, and the deaths that are happening right now because of this event but you know when we think about covid we have to also think about previous disasters in american history and and sufferers and victims i think in part because those sufferers and victims do form a population of sympathy and support for each other we have those those things to rely on and so you know, it seems like September 11, has. there's been less discussion about it this year than ordinarily, and it's the 19th anniversary and not the 20th. Maybe there's various things about that. But I know to someone like yourself who has been involved in that event in one way or another every day since then, this is an important day. And I wonder if you might just tell us a little bit about your experience on September 11, and then we'll talk a little bit about kind of your engagement Uh, with understanding what happened on that day.
1: Sure. So, um, so I, at the time uh, in 2001, I was uh, working at John Jay. Uh, I was teaching, of course, fire science and um, I taught uh, a Tuesday, Thursday schedule. So September 11th, 2001 was on a Tuesday morning. And I tell you, like everybody said, I, I got in my car that morning and it was like, Wow, that's a really nice blue sky. I mean, it was it was everybody saw the same thing that, that I saw. And that's why it keeps getting mentioned all times. It was just that kind of morning. It was, it was relatively warm out. It was a beautiful, absolutely beautiful day. And so I, I had a I had a 920 class at John Jay. So my normal route would take me from Northwest Bergen to a park and ride in North Bergen, which is actually a, not in Bergen County, but it's it's in Hudson County, right near the Lincoln tunnel. So I was headed down there uh, to, uh, to park my car, get in the bus, and then head into the city and go to class. So, um, so as I was, I was traveling down, it, again, it's one of those things in life, you just re- you'll never forget it, but there's an area called the, there's a, there's a rest area called the Vince Lombardi service area, just sort of south of the beginning, or the, the northern, northernmost end of the turnpike and the, the sort of the two um, two um, spurs sort of cross at that point. Well, I went through that area under a bridge and I came out the other side and uh, I looked up and uh, I could see the North Tower. It was a, a lot of smoke coming out of North Tower and even at a distance, and of course being a fire person for a fairly long time, I could see that this was an incredible incident going on. I mean, I had no idea it was a plane at that particular moment. I even put the AM radio on. This is before Sirius, put the AM radio on, and and, and the two New York 24 hour, seven day a week, no stations, neither one of them was saying anything about it until at one point, like a minute later, as I'm traveling down in Turnpike, watching it, looking at this, um, the one. Reporter said, "Hey, we're sending a helicopter down to the World Trade Center. Something is going on there. So it, was, it must be within probably three or four minutes of the attack." And um, so anyway, I continued down the highway, watching this as I get I get off, went into the park and ride, got on the bus, and you know seeing what happened in those days. You know, I had a, had my little portable scanner with me, so I could listen to what was going on. I had the F New York City Fire Department on that radio, so I brought it with me on the bus. And we rode in and I literally got or we got probably about 400 feet shorter Lincoln Tunnel entrance. And this helix is a curve that goes in on the New Jersey side and everything stopped. And it stopped in a place that all of us on the bus are looking straight down the Hudson River watching everything that's going on. I mean, it was it was incredible. And, you know, as we were traveling there. I was thinking, I said, look, this is a, this is a major incident. So I did actually make a quick call to my wife because she was working for IBM at the time. She And of course, a lot of people weren't at work yet because it was co- roughly quarter to nine. So she wasn't there yet. And I left a message at fire engineering magazine where I'm the technical editor for the editor who's coming in. I said, look, you probably got to come over here because this is, this is an incredible incident. So anyway, um, the bus again stops and we're just watching this and I'm listening on the radio and it's. You know, it's just it's unbelievable what, I'm, what we're seeing here. Just by free coincidence, while we're waiting here, they were still letting buses out of the city. And the same bus number, New Jersey Transit number, happened to come right past us. And he stopped and he opened up his door and we got off of our bus because we weren't going into the city at this point. We got on the other bus. But as we were waiting here right before this happened, I was thinking, I was actually going to grab, I was teaching a building construction class and I was going to take my students on this because I knew exactly how to get there, get on the subway. We we're going to head down there to see this once in a lifetime kind of fire. Of course, that never happened. Thank mm-hmm. God, of course, the end result was what it was. But but anyway, I ended up getting back in my car again and I can't tell you how many cars in the Jersey Turnpike were stopped in the shoulder watching. But I headed home because I didn't know what we were going to be doing in terms of my fire department, we were at the complete opposite end from the GW bridge. So we're, we're like the furthest kind of point away, but I didn't know what we were going to do. So I was a line officer as a captain at the time. So we all were, and when I got home, of course, all the guys were at the firehouse and we were trying to figure out what we were going to do in terms of response because I knew that New York city was going to have a lot of equipment down there. And we didn't know if we would have to play a role in, you know, doing that as it turned out, we didn't. Uh, some of us ended up staging that giant stadium, which they didn't eventually need us. But some of the East Bergen County, uh, East Bergen towns like Fort Lee and Leonia, some of them went into Upper Manhattan because the firehouses were empty. And on the other end of the city, down the southern end, I know that Monmouth County, for example, sent a bunch of equipment that was there for a week or two. Hmm. So it was just because we realized that maybe we we're going to play a role here. Um, we followed. We didn't self-deploy. We followed the rules because that's a problem in emergency management: is people just showing up. That was an issue in 9/11. Um, the fire department—I had one of my students actually was a logistics chief there. Uh, he told me, uh, you know, like the following year, you know, what had happened from his perspective, the logistics chief. He said the the best thing for him they ever did down here was get that fence up around the entire site. National Guard came in and set it up because they had no control over people coming in there, and it mm-hmm. could have been anybody. And the, the issue was they were really worried about somebody been killed in the recovery effort. Now, of course, that happened in a different way. They were concerned initially that they were a piece of steel form or whatever. But so that was kind of what happened. Now, the following days, we basically, I went down to the site. Some of us from my department went down the site. Uh, in the following week, because school was closed, of course, there was a point at which FEMA perhaps was going to use our college building as a um, housing site because We had, it was right along the West Side Highway, and we had multiple showers, of course, for our athletics department, and we had a lot of things they needed. They never ended up using us. But another thing my colleague and I did, uh, Professor Jennings and I, was we did help one of our other students, who was the deputy OEM director for the city. And to this day, I don't know how he did it, but he ended up uh, creating a whole new Office of Emergency Management facility Uh, on the pier up in upper Manhattan near the college, actually, he set it whole thing up in about two days. I could not believe this is because some of you might remember that on nine 11, the building seven also was affected and collapsed. That was where the city's OEM office. It was a crazy place for it to be. It should never have been there in the first place, but when the building collapsed, their entire emergency management physicality went with it. And so uh, this uh, fellow, uh, set up a whole new center. So that was what happened in the first week or two. Mm. Uh, we tried to uh, play a, you know, play a, a role of, of um, you know, whatever we could do to help and stuff.
0: So um, that's kind of what we did. So, John Jay, of course, being a, a college that's um, educated a lot of firefighters and police, Port Authority police, first responders. You had a lot of students die that day, right?
1: Yeah, actually, John Jay had. Um, has the most alum and then current students. And one faculty member who was a friend of mine who I brought on to teach hydraulics. He was killed that day, Andy Fredericks. So we had, John Jay has, again, has the unfortunate distinction of having the most um, people killed in 9-11. We actually just had our service. Yes, they had to be virtual, of course. Uh, we have a nice memorial in the middle of the college. Um, between our old sort of old high school, repurposed building and our brand new building, we have a memorial hall there. So uh, we have a service every year, and uh, like I said, had a big impact on on us. I mean, just you know, because we all knew people. I mean, everybody in the you know anybody involved with police or fire knew lots of people that were that were killed that day. So um, and we tried to memorialize the best way we could. Yeah. And, uh
0: Well, thanks and, for. Um, Thanks for going back and, and reliving that, your experience of that day. I really appreciate that. Um, uh, and I know that you, and you mentioned Charles Jennings, uh, colleague um, there John Jay, started asking some questions immediately. Um, you were already certainly aware of the fire vulnerabilities of those towers. Um, that was no secret in the fire department and people who knew about building codes in New York City. But I'm wondering, you know, in that in that fall, as the fall went on, as I understand it, you, you were asking it's very hard people it's hard for people to remember. They need to know that to ask questions about what happened that day that veered away from the narrative of terrorism, to ask those questions, those questions were not always very well received. Even just to get access to the site, find out what had happened in the buildings, who had evacuated, who hadn't. Those were, I, I know this sound, I tell students this and they look at me like I'm crazy. I said, those were controversial questions to ask at that time. It's hard to ask those it questions, worked. but you and, and Charles were asking those questions in the fall of 2001. What were you trying to understand? Well, you're
1: absolutely right, because um, in most disasters, um, you know, this is just this the nature of the animal that to, the 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 time to get information is fairly early on. It's not years later, and so it just had just through happenstance um, we have a, we had a relationship as we do today with the media in New York um, because uh, they reach out to us because they really don't have any other place to go. I mean, they call the fire department or they can call the fire union, but we're the only sort of in let's say I don't want to say objective, but that's not the right word, but <laughs> the only independent group out there that can sort of talk to some of the technical issues. So it turns out that, um, uh, Joe Calderon, um, basically from the New York daily news, um, gave us a call and to Charles and I, and, uh, said, you know, the basic question from him was how is high rise firefighting going to change going into the future? And basically says, we don't know, because we don't know what happened. I mean, this is still within a month of, 9-11 we don't we didn't even know how many people have been killed at that point so that's what we asked that question and it was printed in the daily news and within a couple of days charles and i both got phone calls from a woman by the name of sally Reganhorn. now sally um is a um to this day is an advocate from from that day on for building safety she created a group called the skyscraper safety campaign but her initial call to us was basically, I wanna know the same thing because uh, my son was killed down there. Sally's son was a probationary firefighter who was killed uh, probably near the South Tower in the Marriott Hotel. And uh, like 40% of the other victims in 9-11, his, his remains were never recovered. And so she wanted to know what happened um, to her son. Her son was a, a recon Marine Sergeant Uh, an artist. I mean, he's all these different kinds of things in a young man that he had a, a full, of course, just like everyone did a full life ahead of him, but he was so diverse in terms of his interest and his abilities. He was a mountain climber. I mean, this list goes on and on, but Sally wanted to know what happened and so did we. So what became really important was the fact that we, we had the technical knowledge but she had thing that had something we didn't have. And that was moral authority, basically. So we started meeting with her. We discussed what the issues were. You know, what happened to 9-11 in terms of the buildings, um, a lot of those were issues well before 9 Nine eleven 9-11 was a lightning rod for a lot of different specific problems that we felt in, in our codes and our responses and things like that. So what ended up happening was she created Skyscraper Safety, the campaign, Uh, we, um, we were her technical advisors. Um, she ended up with a press conference in December of 2001 in front of city hall. It was incredibly nasty, rainy day. And, uh, but the end result was that there was growing interest in what happened there and by December. So as I told you before, or you, you actually, you pointed out, I don't know if I mentioned that there is an element of Monday morning quarterbacking here. Okay, because you walk a very fine line by asking for an inquiry where you just had 3,000 people killed, 343 firefighters and one fire patrolman killed that day. So when you start asking questions like that, some people take umbrage legitimately. They, they're concerned that you're trying to uh, move away from the terrorism issue over to something that they did. And, of course, that's not the case. Uh, we wanted to know why they died um, and what role did the variety of issues around the trade center itself play? What, what were the roles of the buildings basically in their deaths? So skyscraper safety had that press conference. Fortunately, um, we were heard by an upstate New York congressman by name of Sherwood Bollard from Utica, New York. He happened to be the head of the house science committee. We were, they called us and said, We think there's something here we'd like an inquiry as well because at that point the inquiry consisted of fema doing an inquiry with a contract with the american society of civil engineers the problem that we were arguing wasn't that the people involved were you know not well qualified they were very well qualified people but they didn't have several things they didn't have money everything cost something they didn't have authority meaning that they couldn't secure evidence they couldn't get access to the site where they personally wanted to go And they also had no time. These were volunteers. They weren't even being paid to do this. Mm. So it's a really long story that, you know, involves, you know, a variety of people. But at the end of the day, it was Sally's moral authority that opened the doors for people like me, Charles, to actually push for this inquiry. And we actually did get that. So the end result was we we were successful in uh, getting a new law passed. Um called the National Construction Safety Team Act. It's to this day it's still remarkable, okay that the hearings were in March and May, and the bill was actually introduced on the floor in July. That bill on the floor in the House in July was signed by the President in October of '02. I mean, it's just it, nobody believes that it went that quick., yeah. but the reason it did is because it was so logical. We didn't have a building investigative authority that had resources to do what was needed. But I can tell you along the way, Sally did and, and her her co-chair, uh, Monica Gabriel, did a wonderful job because like along the way, this bill ended up going to the Senate, of course, once the House was done with it. And it turned out that the Congress was in New York in 2002, so the first anniversary. And lo and behold, who was the chairman of the science equivalent the science and technology committee of the Senate? But John McCain. So hmm. Sally found out that John McCain was on Staten Island for some event. And so the, both of them drove over there, showed up and said, you know, Senator McCain, the bill that we're really interested in getting a, a technical investigation of what happened so we can learn the lessons and apply the recommendations. Basically that bill is in your committee. Do you know, that was like a Saturday by Tuesday it was voted out of the entire Senate, got through his committee and out of the Senate. So there's a remarkable set of circumstances that mm-hmm. happened to get us to the point where the national Institute of standards and technology got $16 million more than the nine 11 commission got by the way, yeah. to, to do the technical inquiry of that day. And what do we get? We got law, you know, s- several large reports, but most important to us are where, what were the, the tangible recommendations that could be implemented to help The future, basically, because in my mind and a lot of people, you know, like minded people, the best memorial you could ever build to a a fallen firefighter in my world is is changing things. Right. So the future. So you don't have that incident happen again or the Mm -hmm. same kind of circumstances. So what do we get? We got much better high rises because of it, you know, up until 9-11, you know, if Scott Knowles was building a high rise in Philadelphia, that was 10 stories high. By definition, was a high-rise. If he built one that was 200 stories high, it was a high-rise. But the requirements were identical for two for buildings like this. It made no sense. So we got a lot of improvements. We got better firefighter communications in buildings, which now, of course, is a big issue now because of active shooter issues that are going on. Because the the, the changes in our building and fire codes, which allow those systems, can also applies to schools and things like that, where radio single amplification is so important, but we got, uh, we got better, what we call fireproofing insulation for the steel. We got better water supplies for sprinkler systems. Uh, we got, and in terms of command and control, we did a, there are a lot of good things coming to that, but let me give you an example where one thing we didn't get, if some of your, your listeners might remember photographs from that day in which that you could see firefighters still pictures of firefighters going up the stairs and people coming down. Well, if you look at the people coming down, they're stationary and they're they're sideways leaning up at the wall to let the firefighters go by. We thought it was a no-brainer to get from what the national standard is for high-rise stairs is 44 inches. What that means is two times 22. What's the 22? That's the average width of a shoulder of a World War I-era person, 22 inches. Okay, that's how far back in time that goes. So two 22s, two people can theoretically go up and down. Nobody's a 22-inch shoulder with anymore, okay? People are bigger, right. and so the 44 has been around for a million years, and we wanted to change. You know, you cannot imagine the pushback mm. we got from all sides, the private sector particularly, but we also got pushback from GSA, the Government Services Administration, the, the agency that owns federal buildings. They fought us on it, too. It was like, all we're asking is go from 44 to 56, mm they could tell you exactly how much less rentable space they would get for that additional 12 inches. So that's one thing that we sort of got a little bit out of, but Mm -hmm. it's one that was really never fixed. So, but the bottom line was this, we put in place a structure for future building disasters. And this now has done um, West Warwick, Rhode Island nightclub fire investigation. They've done Joplin, Missouri for the tornado several years ago. And now I believe they're still working on uh, Maria hurricane Maria. some of the issues in Puerto Rico. So it's a good first start to get sort of the technical um, information out of these disasters that we can actually turn them around and put them into better regulations or better protocols too. I didn't really get into that, but you know, New York city fire department will never ever send every fire rescue unit. They have five of them in the city. Those are the elite units. They'll never send every one of them to a major incident ever again. They will never put their command post in the building that's involved ever again. There's several things that theoretically won't ever happen again because of these inquiries.
0: That's, um, you know, those reforms that you mentioned is also, I mean, it's a laundry list of all of the vulnerabilities that the Twin Towers had. And as you said, not every one of them was addressed. but the importance of that of that study and the way you tell the story there, that, that without Sally Regenhard's effort and the marshalling of her moral authority as mother whose son had died, None um, of know, this would have happened. None of it would have happened. Really, yeah, we tend to think, well, it's just logical. Won't we want to try to figure out what happened in the disaster? And I, and I just want to underline that for our discussion because people should not assume that just because we should know what's happening with COVID-19 that we will. I mean, I think that the lesson I draw from what you're talking about is that we have to always be vigilant in, in these disasters, that the process of investigation is we might not like this, but it is ultimate. it's a human one, and therefore it's a political one. And political pressure will have to be applied because there are st- strong interests that would rather just forget and move on for a variety of complicated reasons. Uh, and that was certainly true, as you said, with September 11, the towers from the court authority to the GSA and many other entrenched interests who would like to say, well, that was a one-off thing. We can't use that as a basis to plan the future. And as you've just pointed out, well, actually the lessons learned there not only have affected high-rises in the United States, I mean, it's affected high-rise construction in other parts of the world as well. Glenn, let me, um, since we've been talking about Sally and, and the efforts of skyscraper safety, you were also engaged in discussions about the memorial and continue to be, if I understand, I think you are. Um, it's a difficult topic, but I'd, I want to sort of get into it a little bit. What's... What should the memorial have been? What are some of your concerns about the memorial? I'm talking about in New York now, um, the memorial that we have.
1: Right. So, um, again, working with Sally, uh, you know, of course, as as the recovery efforts ended uh, nine months later, You know, there's all the big questions about what are we going to do with Ground Zero at this point? Everyone knew there would be a memorial. The question is what it would look like. There was this series of of town, we call them town hall meetings called Listening to the City, which Sally participated in as a family member. And people were asked questions about what it should look like and what have you. But at the end of the day, um, the memorial, I think that a lot of people want is not what we ended up with. I mean, and I'll come out and I'll just say it myself, I, I'm not a family member. I, I'm not. I mean, I, I had f- lots of friends that were killed that day, but I'm not a family member directly. Um, and so a lot, but again, talking a lot of family members, I think a lot of people assume that, you know, it would be dedicated to the victims of that day. A museum was really never part of it in the early days. I mean, in terms of detailed discussions. And to make a really long story short I think even a lot of your listeners might remember there was a section of uh, of I think it was a I think it was a north tower There was a section of the exterior wall column set for like 10 stories high and it was it, it was in every photograph you'd see you see this piece of it everybody for example thought they were going to preserve that okay that would be part of some kind of memorial like a Hiroshima type memorial where they actually leave the extant building the pieces of it left behind, that that would be part of it. That was never, it never ended, up, of course, being part of it. What most people thought would be something, uh, you know, certainly wonderful, but nowhere near the amount of money that was eventually spent on close to a billion dollars was spent on that memorial. They, I think in my mind, like I said, talk to a lot of family members, they wanted something that was very respectful, something that was was focused on the, on the, the victims that day. And they didn't get that. So I just wrote in a recent op-ed, because some of your listeners know about the issue of the reading of the names this year and the Tribune light. Um, You know, I wrote an op-ed for the group, the other group that Sally's involved with. Uh, It's a parents and families group for firefighters and World Trade Center victims. Um, Basically, the op-ed said that, you know, we had hoped for something much more respectful for the the victims. And we ended up with two of the largest waterfalls, man-made waterfalls ever made, that really abstractly reflect the buildings They don't reflect people. Even the names in the earliest of days, the names were never going to be above ground hmm. because a lot of family members fought that tooth and nail to get the, at least the names put above ground. But that's today's nylon Memorial is very much an urban park. It's not, it, it, there's no, it's not like if anyone's been to Oklahoma city, there's only two ways to get into that Memorial on either side. This is not that way. It's wide open. And you can expect when you have a wide open area, what you're going to find inside of it. I mean, it's, it's not, in my mind, it's not a respectful place. It's not, there's no reverence there. Uh, a lot of people are here taking selfies and it's, it's, a, it's really a tourist destination more than anything else. And so we've been really, you know, we started off ironically, Scott, with Sally and I and, and some other folks, we start off more about the safety issues because this is still a terrorist target. That site is still a big terrorist target and the original design which had people going below grade for the memorial itself in the waterfalls there was so many in our minds so many vulnerabilities that they did actually change that hmm. but they never what ended up happening was they ended up merging the memorial and the museum together in 2006 because of the financial this is this is all, this, this was out of control financially they merged the two together to save money but what they did basically is take two distinct things and weave them together. I am mm-hmm. I am totally opposed, personally, I'm totally opposed to matching museums and memorials together. They're two separate things. One is an education facility, one in fact is a remembrance facility. They're two different things and they're in conflict, I think, in this situation. Sally's son in the memorial hall where the photographs are, they're all, I call them a cattle because the photographs are about that big and they're stacked up to the 12 foot level in this room. His photograph is at the 12 foot level. You can't even see his face up there. Okay. If you want to know anything about him, okay, you got to go to a kiosk and start punching information. You don't even, so it's, it's crazy. And yet, the 19 hijackers, they're in the museum too. Okay. And their photographs and descriptions are at eye level. Okay. Where this doesn't make any sense, in, at least in my mind, of trying to moralize somebody by putting the, the, the murderers in the same room, basically. Or the same area. So I I just you know I just can't understand it. And of course, the big issue, Scott, that you know is that for the family members I mentioned earlier that 40% of victims have never been been recovered. Um, Sally's son is one of those victims, and they were totally opposed to um to putting the remains in the museum. That's where they are. Now they're not on display, but they're in the basement at their the lowest level of the museum behind a blue wall, basically. And if Scott for your listeners, if anybody is listening here, unless you're a family member, you got to pay twenty six dollars now to go in there to pay your respects. Okay? Uh, we thought the mo- the human remains should have been above ground, something like the Tomb of Unknown Soldier, something like that, which would not only be accessible, would probably bring a lot more respect to the above ground memorial as it stands right now. So, at the end of the day, I wrote an op-ed a couple of weeks ago in the New York Post. Um, basically calling the National Park Service to take over the above ground memorial and to bring the remains up. That's what we're calling for. And we actually have a Congressman Rose now on Staten Island who um, heard our, our call for this. And he wrote a letter, basically as a Congressman to, to asking to meet with the National Park Service to do exactly that. That's what's required legally. So if the Park Service to get involved, they need to have a request from a congressman. And we have that now. So I don't know where this is going to end up, Scott. I know that the Memorial Museum, they, their total funding is $80 million a year. That's $10 million an acre down there. For comparison purposes, Yosemite is in the $30 million range. That's the size of three states, basically, three small states. So this yeah. is eight acres, $80 million an acre. Their entire money supply, of course, was primarily through the, the, the museum emissions that stopped in March. So they are so far financially in, in, in a bad situation that this is, this is the time that they really need to rethink this whole thing. And perhaps the park service will play the primary role here at the memorial. And then the found their foundation can deal with the museum part of it. But I, I just, it was something that I, I personally don't like the design um, it was chosen by a, a group of people, including the designer of the Washington's Vietnam Memorial. And uh, I just, my, listen, I'm old school. I'm in, this, in my sixties now. I'm a traditionalist. I like more, more less abstraction and more, right? More, more well, sig- significant, right. Okay. So that's yeah. that's where I am on
0: yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I, I I appreciate you going into that into that detail because once again, there are meaningful lessons to be learned there. Um, if people people need to know that there's a, a lot of political um, angst that can erupt around memorials, memorial designs, memorial locations, and you know, as you were describing the problem, particularly I to me the most acute one, which is still, I've never heard a, a sufficient answer is whether or not the museum itself the museum there as you describe it it functions as a de facto cemetery because you have these unidentified remains within the structure itself most people aren't aware of that and you know part of that also reflects the overwhelming challenge that the coroner's office in the city of new york medical examiner's office has had ever since then and the burden which I and I mentioned this, probably you thought about this as well when we saw that footage of Hart's Island being used in April um, to bury people because it ran out of places to bury people in New York City. I mean, so once again, we're facing these kind of issues. You know, we're not really set up to deal with the metabolism of death that we saw on September 11 and that we're seeing, still seeing, we certainly saw in April and May with COVID. Um, I want to. That's a good point, Scott. That's a good
1: point because. You're right. I mean, when it came to COVID, um, you know, think of historically there's a place called North brothers Island up across from the Bronx in hell's gate, right? That was a communicable disease hospital. They built that a hundred years ago to deal with situations like this so they could immediately have a place to send people. We don't have that. I mean, it's remarkable to think that the folks around a hundred years ago were smart enough to say, Hey, we should have a place that if something like this happens, uh, that we can send people. And of course, the most famous occupant of that location was Typhoid Mary. Right. So we don't have that. I mean, it's remarkable. That I don't think anybody's even mentioned that now, that we should be thinking about going forward. We should have places that would be, you know, regional places where we can send people with things like COVID that would have would be fully staffed. And fully equipped to deal with communicable diseases they would have the ventilators that have all the stuff they need but on the other hand you know if you know if this happens maybe 50 years from now we'd use these buildings for some other purpose for training or something else right. but they would be available to us we ended up overwhelming right. the hospitals in new york city area i mean there were just there were just patients everywhere and so see- you're right and and we didn't learn to I mean, that was a lesson they knew 100 years ago, and we forgot it,
0: basically. That's interesting. It's a tie back to discussion I've had um, recently with Christos Linteris and Graham Moody, who are public health historians, talking about a 19th century knowledge, um, pandemic, dealing with pandemics um, and quarantine facilities um, in some cases where people were encouraged to take up residence for a period of time in a quarantine facility, forced in some cases, invited. Um, but in also taken care of because the reality was you couldn't just leave people um, to die in the street or expect that they would come forward for quarantine if they thought they were gonna be badly treated. Um, so many of these lessons from, from that deeper past, maybe because we don't like to think about these kinds of things, or we think that we're so modern that it'll never happen to us again. I wanna, um, cognizant of time, Glenn, I want to get to another topic if we can, and, and it's a, a case where you and I work together. Um, and you were uh, the, the lead investigator, organizer, and chair, co-chair of an investigative commission which looked at a building collapse in Philadelphia. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about. Um, so that's now you go from being an advocate for skyscraper safety to actually being in charge of an investigation. Um, A little uncanny to find yourself on that side um, of the table, I suppose. Can you say a little bit about what that was like and what the outcome of that investigation was?
1: Right, right. Thanks, Scott. So to set the stage, um, uh, this is an incident which uh, occurred um, several years ago in Philadelphia on Market Street. Basically, it was a situation where a series of buildings were being demolished to make way, I would assume for, I think it was the plan was to have high rises put up. They were old, uh, we call ordinary construction buildings, basically brick with wooden frame type buildings. There was a whole a whole block full of them. And the situation was such that at the very end of the block at 22nd Street, there was a one story. These, the other ones were all three, four story buildings. There was a one story building <coughs> at the end of the block at 22nd Street, which housed a uh, Salvation Army thrift store. And, um, basically what happened was, of course, uh, for those who are familiar with it, was that as the building demolition was proceeding adjacent to this thrift store, um, the operator of a piece of heavy equipment knocked over a freestanding wall, which effectively fell onto the, um, store and, uh, killed several people, including, uh, one, uh, two young women, one of which was the daughter of the city treasurer of the city of Philadelphia. And so, um, what ended up happening, of course, was there was a lot of, of course, scrutiny of how did this happen and what, 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 you know, why did this take place and things like that? Um, but what, the most important thing was, was that, um, that a phone call was made to a guy by the name of Scott Knowles. Okay. And Scott actually received a phone call of the city treasurer, the woman who lost her daughter. And she called up Scott and said, Scott, I see that you do, you write about disasters and disaster investigations. What do you think we should do? So that led to a phone call with the three of us. Um, and the woman's name is Nancy Winkler. The three of us had a phone call. And basically uh, one of the recommendations to her was that um there's more to this than just the collapse. There's a series of things going on in the city that allowed that to happen. We need to know a lot more about specifically the department of license and inspections. So she went, cause she, she had the moral authority like Sally did. She had the moral authority as, as, as a, as a mother of a, of a woman killed in a collapse, but also the city treasurer. She said to the mayor Nutter, I, I want a commission. And they did that. And, uh, so, you know, for, for your listeners, Scott and I ended up on the commission. Um, and uh, we had, I think, initially about 20 some people on it. It sort of narrowed down to the end. We were about 16 months out, roughly, when we finished our report. We were down to probably about eight or 10 at that point. Um, but most importantly about it was this I think the, the important things in my mind about the commission were that the city gave us a pretty wide charge. Right. That the the executive order allowed us to look at things, not just the collapse. That's important, certainly important. But what is going on in that organization that allowed this to happen in the first place? That's that's a primary question. So they gave us a charge that was a wide net. And I've been involved in commissions and things over the years and stuff. But one important thing I learned was when you put a new commission together, a group like this, you're bringing all sorts of people, some of which know each other a lot that don't. Mm -hmm. that if you open it up for, like, what are we going to do kind of thing, you know, it, it takes forever to get a plan of action. So the, I think the most important thing I ever did there was before we started, before the first meeting happened, I put a, um, a a specific plan of action in place and, and on paper. And then the first day we met, I said, here's something I'd like to do. Can we, can we agree on this? And they basically did so we, we went soup to nuts. I mean, we looked at the management of the organization. We looked at the other jobs that they have to do in terms of permitting. We got deep into the weeds of um, the responsibilities of the inspectors and people like that. We looked at their salary levels. We looked at all sorts of things that, that were in one way or not relevant to the operation of this, of this, this city agency. And uh, after about 16 months, we got, um, we got a re- our report put together. Thank, I mean, I have to say a couple of bumps in the road here. Thank goodness. The city did give us an office and they gave us a, a staff person to help us, but there really was no clerical help. And thank God. Um, we had some folks who were involved. Uh, uh, Peter Vira was, was, was the executive director. I was the chairman of the commission. He was the executive director. He brought in, um, some other folks to help us and those law offices helped us with the clerical side. I think that was really important. We had that. So anyway, at the end of the day, we wrote a, a very lengthy report. Actually, Scott's chapter was, he wrote the, really the first chapter, sort of set the stage in what this department of lights inspections was all about. How was it, how was it created in the 1950s? It was a good, as Scott pointed out, it was a good government initiative to try to avoid things like um you know bribery and all this other kind of stuff with involving and in building inspection stuff so they wanted to focus they wanted to centralize it all in one place they could control it the problem is by doing that they made it worse in a different way it was totally ineffective in a lot of right. cases. so you know the bribery is probably still issues still there but the effectiveness was really compromised right. as time went on so the point was i think we came up with a really good report uh, they made a handful of changes um I, there's a lot of significant ones they haven't made but you know philadelphia you would think that for example in the city of philadelphia um one of the largest cities in the country that they would have a structural engineer on their staff when we were there they had no structural engineers they had no electrical engineers in their staff they third-party inspections they allowed private pr- private practice inspectors for electrical inspectors. there's a lot of things that there's just so many things that we came across we did, And one additional point is we spent a lot of time talking with people. We interviewed lots of employees and anyone else who was interested in talking to us. We set up a website, a phone number, a place that we could meet them if we needed to. They didn't want to do it where they were working. We tried to make it as easy as possible for anyone who was wanting to get involved that they could do that. And I, I think we came up with a really good report. I think, you know, it's, it's something that w- could be a roadmap perhaps to another Analysis of another building department somewhere. Um, you know, we looked at all aspects that we could think of that that again, at the end result, affected their operational abilities. Basically, so so that's that's what happened, and I'm proud of it. Scott's, I'm sure Scott's proud of it, and um, you know, it's something that, and of course, we all did a pro bono. By the way, too. there was no money involved with this, although. Scott knows I had f- about $4500 worth of reimbursable travel expenses in that car from New Jersey yes, Philadelphia, Philadelphia, Jersey Philadelphia for like 16 months. It's so anyway, it was quite an undertaking. It was it was an interesting thing, but I think it's yeah. a landmark report too because I, you know, I, my world outside the college is a lot of code stuff. That's where I spent 10 years in code enforcement in, in San Antonio and Austin. And uh, I still involve a lot with the regulatory side of things. And I don't know of anybody who's ever done this kind of study of any part in America. Right, so right. like I said, I think we did a wonderful job, really. If I can pat our, pat you and me on the back.
0: <laughs> well, I, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you've earned that for sure. And I, another thing just to, that strikes me as you, as you tell it, how crucial it was that you came into that investigation. First of all, that the mayor, um, and yeah, I agree with you. I wish more of it of uh, the findings uh, and the recommendations had been implemented. But that the mayor was willing to allow experts uh, to run this, and the city council, to its credit, did its own sort of set of hearings, and they had their own process. And there was a, there was a criminal process going. There were a lot of many th- different things happening simultaneously, but that the mayor did bring you in. And I think again, it's just a crucial thing to know that this combination of a technical expert you, with the moral authority of Jay Bryan and Nancy Winkler, who were mourning their daughter and Bryan, they it was that was a powerful combination. And I think once again, it's it's relevant to where we find ourselves right now. And that's and we're almost up on on time. But I think the good place to close out, you know, uh, maybe in this discussion, people, uh, there's no point in trying to hide the fact that you and I respect each other's work and work together, and we co-authored an opinion piece, which is uh, out in issues in science and technology, in which we lay out what we see as some ideas for how a COVID, not just a COVID-19 investigation should work, but that the federal government in the United States needs a more robust investigative body, which we call for in in that op-ed, and I I encourage people to look at it and, and support it if they feel like they can. Um, and I wonder if you wouldn't mind saying a little bit to you, what are some of the critical things that an investigative board like that should be able to do, Glenn?
1: Well, you know, one of the one of the larger issues I think here is that we, you know, I guess the public thinks that there's these investigative authorities to look at a variety of things. I mean, everybody's familiar with the NTSB. But the NTSB is basically looking, of course, they're Big issue is, is aircraft accidents. They're in charge of pipelines and some other things as well, but and trains actually to a certain extent. But the problem is that a lot of these are siloed in such a way that they're they're just like a slice of of potential um you know issues out there that need to be looked into. And so that's what we've got sort of in the federal government right now. And so if we think about going forward, you know, the government really should have sort of one central place that we can go to that would be in charge of saying, hey, you know, this is an important thing we need to know more about. Let's dig into it and figure out what are the issues here? Are there gaps in what we know and what we understand? Or is it simply people didn't follow normal protocols or rules or whatever? So I think that's to understand that we don't have something like that right now. We don't have a body in the federal government that can pick up on COVID, for example, or pick up on anything that happens in terms of disasters. You know, you you think about that bridge up in Minnesota several years ago, across the Mississippi River. Um, You know, this civil engineers studied that thing, but there was really no federal response per se. I mean, in terms of a detailed investigation, to my knowledge. So the thing is that... We need to have sort of a, a one. I don't want to say one-stop shopping, but that kind of thing. In the sense that, when something like this happens, oh, gee, Scott, the National Disaster Investigation Board is going to be looking into that. There should be like a normal public response that way, right? That oh, they've got that, right? They've got that. So that's the. I think the big issue here is to make sure that that we have that capability in the United States, and that over time. We can build our ability to sort of sort of, sort of, of collate, to gather data about similar incidents and things like that in one place, because we don't have that right now. If, if Scott wants to know about an explosion, he might go to the National Fire Incident Reporting System, but, but all that's going to tell him is the incident itself and how many trucks went there and how many people. Were, there's not, it's not like a detailed report that he would want to know more about what happened there. So we need that. We need that. And I think, you know, this COVID is the best example because in my mind, if if, if a magic wand were waved and they said, Glenn, you're the chair of the um, the uh, new disaster investigation board, the first thing I would do is figure out, and put, put all the different issues down that I could think of and try to group them together in distinct areas that we need to do some digging into to find yeah. out. Because like I told you, you know, it's, it's great to know that we're able to sort of get a vaccine for COVID. But again, if, the as you point out before, if the power went off or our food chain stopped, that is worse than, it could be a lot worse than COVID itself, right? And we need to know how vulnerable we are. We know about PPE. We know that all that went overseas. So we're trying to deal with that. But that's just one slice of all these different things. So I would populate it with people with subject matter expertise i wouldn't have politicians on there i'd have people who are historians and engineers and and uh food purveyor experts and transportation sure. logistic transport, experts. Utility experts I mean, I, I, there's a laundry list of people i'd like to yeah. have on this that i'd say hey what the heck happened at that port plant so i'd have people that have general knowledge about that and then they could set up their own inquiry into what was going on there. So we can learn from it. What, what happened that we didn't have mechanisms in place to keep that pork plant running. So, you know what I'm saying? We need, we need subject matter expertise more than we need political horsepower, I think, because at the end of the day, it's, 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 it's what the truth that comes out, the the facts that come out, the information that comes out, that's most important. That's most important. It's not like, gee, this group didn't do this, or that group is, bad or whatever it's what physically happened what can we do to change it so that's that's the way i look at it and unfortunately one Scott, one last point yeah i've been doing this a while now and like i said i'm also a technical editor one of my 1099s and technical editor of fire engineering magazine we're 145 year old journal it's one of the oldest trade journals in the country i can tell you that in the in the last 30 some odd years i've been involved with the magazine that as time has gone on, it's gotten more and more difficult to get information, in our case, about specific fires, because of all of this issue of litigation and shutting down, basically clamming up at the city level to not put a report out. I mean, there's fires. You know how we converse in the fire service about a deadly fire? We do it verbally at conferences because the cities won't let the fire department write even a report about what the heck happened because all the liability issues and stuff. That's a major issue in the investigation field right now is that, that the, the, the desire to protect a city or a government against litigation is to clam everybody up and not put anything out. And so that doesn't help anybody, you know, it doesn't help anybody learn what happened. So we, what we do is we do clandestinely, we talk to conferences, Hey, what happened (coughs) <coughs> at that particular fire, and we talked to the guys and gals that were there, and they tell us, you know, this is what happened. So it's all done informally, but it shouldn't be that way. This right. should be something that's readily accessible to the public. Is it? Is it bad? Is it bad to look at? Yes, and bad in the sense that it's 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 horrific in some cases. It's 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 you know very uh, mentally challenging. It's all those kind of things. But at the end of the day, that's what's going to help us going forward. We have to learn these lessons. I teach a class on 25 most significant fires in America. And one of the points I make is that when I go through my fires, I go, this is a lesson we learned 100 years ago. And we repeated the same thing over again. That's what happens when we don't have any kind of clearinghouse central place to do this kind of stuff. So that's a long answer to a short question. So.
0: It's a it's an important answer. And I also didn't know you taught a class on the 25 most important fires in American history. Someone asked for that syllabus. And I think many people listening would like to know that. But and And just, I mean, this has been a theme of your discussion today, which I really appreciate, which is that um, just because it seems sensible that we would want to learn from a complicated disaster, cascading disaster, um, doesn't mean that people of goodwill might still find it very hard to do it. Mm -hmm. And we also have to take into account that not everybody's of goodwill. And we got to
1: sort of put the... Put the Monday morning quarterbacking issue to the side. I could tell you, like I said, working with Sally particularly, I was the person who also, besides being the technical person, I was the person to walk, essentially walk a fine line, right? Of saying, okay, we can ask about this now, but we can't ask it like yesterday, right? We had to watch as things evolved and when we could push certain issues because some of this stuff, I guarantee you, people were pretty upset with me and I guess with Sally as well. Say, how dare you question these heroes of that day? Okay. And, and of course, you know, we were very careful about what we did because right? Sally, this is virgin territory for her. She had no idea. She never was in the fire service. She had no idea what the landscape was like. So we did this, we did this. And mm-hmm. it was always in the name of really memorializing the people that were killed that day to learn from what happened. Because I, every time somebody would say something like to me, I go, look, I knew Ray Downey, you know, I knew Andy Frerichs. I the list of people that <clears throat> were particularly close to me, you know, and particularly with my work with fire engineering. And I said, I can guarantee you both of those two guys, for example, neither one of them would ever said, hey, Glenn, please don't look at what happened there day, Ignore what happened and just move on. They would not have done that because they were in the same boat that I was in before 9-11. They were really into understanding what happened in a professional way. So, again, this is something that people – you know, we have to sort of come to grips with that, that it isn't a pleasant situation a lot of times to ask certain questions. But at the end of the day, if we're going to, we're going to move ourselves socially forward to better protecting ourselves against a variety of things, this is all we can do. We have to learn from this stuff because it's a, it's not only a mistake,
0: it's a tragedy to the people that died to just ignore what happened. So. Reminding folks who've been listening to COVID calls, and you can catch COVID calls Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, Glenn Corbett, thank you so much for making time on September 11th, this 19th anniversary of that day. Uh, And to Sally Riggenhard, if you're listening, and to all of the other victim families, we're thinking about you. And thanks, especially to Sally, to all she's done in the name of skyscraper safety and for victims and sufferers of of disaster and Nancy Winkler and Jay Bryan as well. Glenn, and thanks a thank lot. By the way,
1: Scott, I have to thank you because you are, you are the tip of the sword when it comes to these kind of things. Um, because what your work is really moving us forward here. Okay. And we all appreciate that. So thank you as well. And particularly for this program and stuff, because this is a lot, I'm sure this is a lot of new stuff for a lot of people. They don't know a lot about it,
0: which they normally would. So thank you. we'll we'll keep talking about it. We need a lot of solidarity and knowledge at this time for sure. Thanks again, Glenn. And we'll talk to you soon. And everybody out there, stay healthy. And we'll see you Monday, 5 o'clock.